0: and support the arts, music and her community. What would Arwen do? Thursdays with me, Tony Tudeville, on KCI 88.9 FM and streaming live at kci.org. Ellen Salalumen <laughs> Amintiava. This is KUCI in Irvine. I am Tani Tenuvial, the resident KUCI Middle Earth elf, and coming up in just a few moments, an elvish perspective on life. And I'm very excited. I have a very special guest this morning, so I hope that you will stick around. This is KUCI in Irvine, the best radio station in the history of Middle Earth. Morning edition of What Would Arwen Do? And uh, we broadcast from the University of California in Irvine, and we are streaming live on the internet 24 7 at www.kuci.org. So, in case you're just tuning in and wondering what in the world is this show all about, well, this is the show where we ask, I ask, if a Middle Earth elf lived today. In Orange County, what might her life look like? How would she celebrate and support the arts, music, her community, and the preservation of Earth, its beauty, resources, and creatures? Some people ask, What would Jesus do? Well, I ask, What would Arwen do? And in case you're not familiar, Arwen was an elf princess, the daughter of Elrond, a prince among elves, and Lord of Rivendell. And if you're interested in that, you can find out more information in The Lord of the Rings and uh, in the sumerian But Rivendell was a magical place of healing, lore, and wisdom, perhaps not unlike the community of people here at UC Irvine. Arwen was also, in my opinion, a beloved daughter of the universe, as are all the fair women of this uh, celestial home called Earth, or an elvish Arda. And I believe that Arwen understood the principle of noblesse oblige, that with great privilege comes responsibility. She embodied the archetype of a true princess of the light through her courage, beauty, and her sense of humor. We see uh, the light side of the princess archetype. I think uh, princesses nowadays often get a bad rap as being vain and materialistic and self-absorbed, but that is the shadow side of the princess. Galadriel uh, and Arwen both embodied all of the, the light of the, the elves in Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, A Guide to Middle-Earth, Colin Durius wrote, In his invented mythology of Middle-Earth, Tolkien intended that his elves were an extended metaphor of a key aspect of human nature. This, quote, elven quality in human life was a central preoccupation of Tolkien's. Elves, like hobbits, dwarves, and the like, partially represent human beings. In Tolkien's mythology, Elves represent what is high and noble in humans. In particular, they represent the arts in their highest form, work done in the image of God and his created world. So, I believe that this, quote, elven quality exists today in every living person and yearns for expression through gifts of creativity, nobility, and service to others. So, my hope and passion is that in listening, in... That you are somehow inspired to uh, service to others or to finding your creative gift and uh, bringing it into the world. Because I promise you that not only will your life be enriched, but the lives of those around you will be as well. So I'm very excited that this morning um, I have a guest Uh, Edward Hirsch is here this morning in in live in the studio. He was here last week. In case you were interested, you can listen to the podcast of that show on our website at KCI.org Or you can catch it through iTunes. Uh, But in just a few moments, Edward will be coming on and we will be talking about poetry and walking and the life of a poet and uh, ways perhaps even that you might uh, think about uh, funding your creative uh, project. He is also the president um, of the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. So uh, we'll be hearing about, uh, about all those good things. In the meantime, I wanted to share with you a little bit. Uh, first of all, I want to say hello uh, to all my friends who are listening in both here in Southern California and through the Internet. Uh, Rowan Berry, uh, listening in from, I believe, over in England, a shout out to uh, her and also to um, Arwen, who's listening in from up in Washington, Vana, and uh, hopefully Guru, her knight in shining armor, um, SilverScribe, and to my friends Kip and uh, SilverScribe, who will be listening to the podcast, a big shout out to Thank you so much to everyone, and thank you so much for last week, all of you who called in support of our year, our once a year annual fund drive here at KCI. Thank you for supporting independent radio and independent programs like this one. However, this morning, I do have to say that I am very excited. I just discovered last week uh, the new book uh, edited by Christopher Tolkien from J.R.R. Tolkien, The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun. So we will be hearing more about that uh, in the next week or so, once I've had a chance to uh, spend a little more time in it. This absolutely enchanting book, uh, The Lay of the Volsungs. Anyway, we'll hear more about that later. Uh, but more wonderful poetry and more wonderful work of the professor for us to delight in. And it has just hit the uh, bookstores just this last week. What a wonderful thing to celebrate. So uh, this morning uh, we're going to segue with a little bit of music um, from... uh, um, This is one of the few places on uh, radio where you you will actually get to hear Elvish music and music from the uh, beautiful music like uh, from the soundtrack of the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. So um, this morning, because we are celebrating poetry, Mm -hmm. I'm going to play uh, the professor himself reading um, in Elvish. Uh, This is Galadriel's Farewell to Lorien, which you will find in the Fellowship of the Ring book. Uh, poetry in Elvish—how delightful is that! And uh, then we'll hear a little song, a little track from the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. So here is J.R.R. R. Tolkien reading from the uh, Fellowship of the Ring. This is
1: Galadriel's lament. <laughs> ieni vilinti iulla ravanier mi oromardi lissimi ruvoreva, ne pella vardo telloma nulluini, sentintilari eleni, o mario airetare livinen, si manni ulma ninnen en quantuva, talle tintalle vardo oio losseo, ve fagna maria ortane. Ar ilje tie rungulave lumbule, As in na noriello kaita mornie falmalinna rimbemet, Ar hisie untupa miri mirioiale. Si vanwana Romello vanwa valimar, Namarie, márié, valye valimar, Nai elje hiru
0: Okay, and this is what we love about college radio. <laughs> we often get the track wrong. So here we are. Let's try that again. KCI and Music from Balin's tomb. Surely we see how Howard Shore captured the beauty and the majesty of Moria in his music, which was such an uh, an incredible accompaniment to the uh, story that J.R.R. R. Tolkien created for us. And so now I will actually play the track that I was intending to play. This is, of course, in. Uh, this is from uh, give, this is give up the huffling uh, the where Frodo where Arwen engages the writers uh, at the river. that enchanting music from the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, the complete recordings, award-winning music by Howard Shore, and how grateful are all of us for such wonderful music to accompany the stories that we love so well. Well, as I mentioned, I am so excited because my guest this morning, uh, Edward Hirsch, who is the author of How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, in addition to, well, seven seven books of poetry, a prize-winning poet and essayist, uh, gave an incredible lecture here last night at UC Irvine, which I was so privileged to attend. I, I barely slept last night. I felt like I was just kind of walking around on air. He talked about... Um, poetry and and, uh, walking and sleepwalking, which we'll be hearing a little more about that. And I thought, oh, gosh, how elvish, because of course the elves always were singing and um, singing and walking in starlight. I'm sure that was their inspiration. And so he also is the president of uh, John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, which provides fellowships in diverse areas of study. So very grateful for that as well. So Edward Hirsch, Good morning.
2: Hi, Tanya. I'm very glad to be here. Oh,
0: thank you so much. It is, I'm so excited. I'm really having to just uh, practice my yoga all morning <laughs> <laughs> and breathe because I'm, I'm so excited uh, about you being here and sharing with us about your life as a poet. And it really has been a life as a poet. You fell in love with poetry when?
2: I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, I started writing poetry when I was in high school. I think a lot of people start writing then. Out of uh, well, I, I'm calling it poetry. That's generous. I was writing. I uh-huh. just was overwhelmed by feelings that I couldn't understand, and I began to write. And poetry seemed like the right outlet for me, and I just have stayed with it. It just was the thing for me.
0: Last night, you shared uh, that there was a poem, uh, and that you heard just with the first few lines, you you fell in love.
2: I was um, I discovered uh, Robert Frost's poem "Acquainted with the Night." I'd been one acquainted mm. with the night. And it, um, I, had all, I had suddenly felt that I had a voice for something. I had been also been acquainted with the night. Um, i had also been attracted to the night. I also was an insomniac. Uh-huh. Um, and I think I was just trying to confront or deal with feelings that I couldn't understand. And Frost gave me a language for it. And it, I mean, poetry ever since then has given me a language for my own inner life, my own feelings.
0: Isn't it amazing how we can, we can discover something, um, words on paper or that either that we hear or that we read and that it resonates so deeply into our hearts I know for myself I fell in love with uh, the world of Middle Earth I came to it through the movies of the Lord of the Rings movies and then of course I went to the libraries like who is this J.R.R. R. Tolkien and who, what is this Middle Earth and that's when I discovered the Silmarillion which is the history the backstory of all of those stories and when I picked up the uh, Silmarillion and began to read, especially in the creation story, I, I felt like I was reading the history of my people. I just felt such a connection with, uh, with this work, with this world. And, and it was an otherworldly type of, of connection. And I think that that's uh, uh, what happens a lot of times with us, with poetry. It's things that we can't ca- articulate, but then somehow we discover them and the words of our hearts uh, kind of come out.
2: It's an odd thing that um, reading a lonely poem, for example, can make you feel less lonely mm-hmm. because somehow there's some, there's some connection that you're making um, with someone else. And I, I've always considered it a generous act to make poems because people take their own feelings, their own inner lives, and they transform them into some work of art so that you can experience the same thing or something of the same thing on your own. And I think the thing, the odd thing about poetry and literature in general, but poetry in particular, is it's a communication between people who are not physically present to each other. Mm. Um, And I think that creates a different kind of intimacy um, that can speak more directly without sort of social encumbrances. Yeah, it's...
0: You say, it, one of the things that I love that you talk about in How to Read a Poem is that is the necessity of the reader.
2: The reader has an important part to play. I mean, when I was going to school, poetry was taught as a kind of puzzle, and the, all the meaning was in the poetry, um, and the reader didn't have anything to do in particular. It was all about the poet and discovering what the poet meant to say. And there was something I felt there was something missing in the equation, but I didn't really know what it was. And later I came to understand that, um, poetry is a kind of relationship between a poet, a poem, and a reader, and the reader has a very important part to play. The reader gives meaning to the poem. Without mm-hmm. the reader, there isn't any poem. And the poetry really exists on behalf of the reader, not on behalf of the writer. Really? I mean, it can help the writer, too, no question about Mm -hmm. it. But making poems is not writing diary entries. It's making something that you put in the world that will find someone else. I mean, Mm. I think the purpose of, of, you might say, poetic inspiration is not to inspire the poet. That's a private affair. It's to inspire the reader, mm. and to do that, you need to make something. That is, you need to make something apart from yourself that will stand in the world, so that some reader can discover it and have the experience himself or herself.
0: What would you say to to those of us who, you know, have kind of dabbled in poetry? We, um, you know, we've written some things for ourselves, and but. You know i I know I've written poetry, but that I you know to me they feel like poems, but I've never really shared them with anyone because I feel like well they're probably not that good or wouldn't want someone to laugh at it and yet there's a part of me that that longs to um, maybe create something that I could share, and that would that would be good enough to do that, but at the same time, I don't know that I can quit what I'm doing and go back and take a formal course of study um, what would What would you say to encourage someone? Like that to to explore the the writing of poetry.
2: I think that the I think there are many people like you that I think there are many people who have felt that there's something in poetry for them in the writing of poetry. They don't know quite what it is. They don't feel that they're professional poets in particular, but they feel some important connection to poetry and they really want to write it. And I would say that um, the extraordinary thing about poetry is that you can learn about writing poetry from reading poetry. Mm -hmm. and I don't think there actually is any writing of poetry without reading it. That is, if you want to be a better poet and you're not reading poetry, I think it's going to be very difficult for you. I don't think you can go just on your own feelings, for Mm -hmm. example, though your feelings can carry you a long way. But I think if you wanted to – if say you can't take any kind of course and you don't – I mean, that would be a very good thing to do to take some kind of course in creative writing or a class or go to a summer workshop is a good thing to do. But say you don't want to do that or you're too private or you don't feel that's the thing for you, you do have the ability to read other poets Mm -hmm. and to see what they're doing and to try and do something of that yourself. That is, you can look at um, the sonnets – of William Wordsworth or the sonnets of Robert Frost if you want to write a sonnet and see how they're doing it and try and do it yourself. Mm. And I think one of the things is you can bring yourself into the world of poetry, not just into the world of your own feelings, but into the world of poetry by reading other poets and imitating them.
0: Yes. And that's what I think is so wonderful because you can, because I was thinking about this like, well... How do i you, you can actually look at it? You can find the rhythm of the poem you can see where it's rhyming, and there are lots of ways to to study these things um, the type of uh, but the, I, I think for me, sometimes I get overwhelmed with there are so many different styles of poetry you know where 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 would i where do i where do I fit in do you, Is it best just to kind of find the the style that that resonates both with your heart? Um, I think
2: the first thing is to find poems that really speak to you,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: that maybe it's Pablo Neruda, maybe maybe it's Rainer Maria Rilke, maybe it's E. Cummings, maybe it's William Carlos Williams, and maybe it's Edna St. Vincent Millay or Marianne Moore or Elizabeth Bishop. Um, You start wherever you are, Mm -hmm. and I think you begin with those poems that actually speak to you. And, I mean, if you go further in poetry, I think you want to expand the range. Um, and you want to find other poets who write in this style, and then other poets are writing at the same period, and then maybe other poets who are not writing in exactly the same style. I mean, there's a history of poetry like there's a history of other things, mm-hmm. but you need to enter wherever you are. And I think the first thing is to find poems that you love and to see how they operate and to look at them a little more closely and try and make your work somehow in some kind of conversation or in relationship to those other poets that you're reading. And I think your work will immediately change and I think it will dramatically get better as soon as you begin, not just to speak to yourself, but to speak to other poets Mm -hmm. and to try and be worthy of them. Then I think the more you study poetry, the more you like a poet, the more you want to see how it formally operates, Mm -hmm. then you're in trouble because (laughs) then you're really in the world of poetry because you want to try and make something like that.
0: I love that because, um well, one of my passions here is that I, I think that a lot of us have uh, special gifts or callings or talents, and we haven't yet even discovered them. Sometimes we don't discover them until uh, much later in life. Um, and this has been... Um, my experience, I most of my life, I grew up believing that I was not creative. Um, my mom was a creative one, and I was told, "No, Tony, you're a good reader. So I, I really absolutely believed that I was not a, a very creative person. And I went to work at this little boutique, and we had the woman that did the displays, made these beautiful displays. And I discovered this, these little bear things at this other shop, and I thought, I'm going to make one of those for the Christmas party for this person. And the owner of the shop thought they were so enchanting that she asked if I would make twelve for that shop and twelve for her shop up in Pacific Palisades. And I, was, and I thought, wow, maybe I am a little bit creative. And but I was like forty something years old, and all my life believed that I was was not very creative. Um, and I think it's um, it can be. I hear people all the time saying, "Oh, well, I'm not very creative, or I'm not very artistic." And I think a lot of times it's just that we haven't been courageous enough, in a sense, to explore some of those, um, to explore more venues and find out where. uh, Because I believe that each one of us is is creative in some, you know, vastly creative in some way. I think we're creative in a lot of ways, but that there's some something that really resonates with our heart that um, that. If we bring it into the world to manifest it, it enriches not only our lives, but the lives of people around us. Like, like with you, I'm so grateful that you have pursued your passion with poetry because of all that we have. Your your books of poetry, your encouragement to people how to read a poem and fall in love with poetry, <clears throat> because you found your calling And you manifested in the world, and look at how we're all enriched.
2: Well, thanks. I mean, I found that, I mean, the readership of How to Read a Poem suggests that there are a lot of people who've come to poetry late. Mm. Um, Well, they liked it when they were young, and they were somehow told, as you somehow seem to have been told, that they weren't creative, I mean, Emerson says that there are creative readers as well as creative writers, and Mm -hmm. I think all of us have that within us, each of us, this is a very American idea, each of us have a spark of divinity within us, Um, and I found that there are a lot of people who somehow had felt there was something in poetry for them, but they'd been turned away from it. Mm -hmm. They'd lost it. They somehow thought that life was too practical, or life was too hard, or they weren't smart enough, that poetry was too difficult for them. And yet they felt somehow called to it because I think they were called to it by their own inner lives, their own needs, their own feelings. And, um, people were looking for some way back into the way that poetry could speak to them. And I think a lot of people have found their way back to poetry as they've gotten older. Mm-hmm. Because in some ways, poetry speaks to us very deeply when we're young. Um, and then people get involved in daily life. And they kind of forget about it in some kind of way. But as you get older and you see that you have deep a deep inner spiritual life and you have deep longings and desires, you're looking for some kind of articulation of those feelings that the practical life that we live isn't entirely sufficient. We need Mm -hmm. something else. And many people have turned to poetry to find what that is.
0: Both the reading and the writing.
2: Both the reading and the writing. Well, to me, they're intimately linked. I don't think there is any reading without. I don't think there's any writing without reading in a serious way, and I I just think that in order to write poetry, you need to read poetry, and I think often creative reading leads you to creative writing because mm. you want to respond in kind. Yes. For example, Emily Dickinson was such a great American poet and a solitary, but she found herself. She called them her kinsmen of the shelf. She found herself in relationship to other poets. And many people have spoken about how isolated and lonely she was. But when you read her letters and her poems, you see very clearly that she wanted to be part of the community of poets, Mm. that she felt she belonged to the community of poets, of Uh, the Brontes, and of Shakespeare, and of those who came before her, and she found great consolation in the reading of poetry, and she wanted to participate in that world, and she responded in kind, which was with her own poems.
0: Mm
3: -hmm.
0: I love that, because I think a lot of time, uh, those of us that like to um, read and to write, whether it's poetry or just writing, you know, working on other types of things. We do, there is a solitariness to that. You know, you kind of have to be alone to to work on things and you you kind of get into an otherworldly place, or at least I feel like it's kind of an otherworldly place. (laughs) Um, I mean, I
2: think the poetry is the communication of solitaries. Mm. I mean, because I think reading poetry, I mean, you can go to poetry readings and you can read it with other people, but deeply it speaks to you most deeply, most privately when you're alone. And when you're alone and you're reading a poem... You're not just alone with yourself, you're alone with the words of another. Mm. And language is necessarily social. So you may be experiencing your own feelings, but you're also experiencing the words of another, and the words of another bring you into some kind of human connection. Mm. And I believe that, that poetry delivers on our spiritual lives precisely because it gives us this gift of... Interiority; It gives us our own private feelings, but it also gives us intimacy and connection because it gives us intimacy with the language and the words of another. Mm. And so poetry gives us both privacy and participation.
0: In case you are just uh, tuning in... Uh this is Tony uh, Teneville. I'm speaking this morning with um, Edward Hirsch, the author of How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, and uh, the author of uh, several books of uh, poetry. Uh, this is KCI in Irvine. Um, Edward, I, uh, your um, most recent book just uh, came out um, Special orders, and when when did that? Was that just released this year? Last year, yeah. Last year, and um, I had asked you because because I I've fallen into an enchantment here, and so (laughs) I may forget and uh, just carry on with our conversation. But I had asked you earlier if you would uh, please uh, perhaps read um, a couple of your poems for our listeners. Um, Well, we decided that I would choose one, that you would choose one, and uh, would you? Would you read uh, 4 a.m.? I believe it's on page four. My pleasure. This, this, um, I think, uh, well, I know we elves are are creatures of the night, and so we spend a lot of time uh, being loved by the moon and stars, Uh, but there's always that time deep into the morning, and uh, so uh, I I really resonated with with this poem of yours. Thank you very much for sharing it.
2: This is a poem called 4 a.m. It's in my book, Earthly Measures. The hollow, unearthly hour of night, swaying vessel of emptiness, patron saint of dead planets and vast, unruly spaces receding in mist, necklace of shattered constellations, soon the stars will be extinguished, a cell block sealed in ice, an ice house sealed in smoke, the hour when nothing begets nothing, the hour of drains and furnaces, Shadows fastened to a blank screen and the moon floating in a pool of ashes. The hour of nausea at middle age. The hour with its face in its hands. The the hour when no one wants to be awake. The scorned hour. The very pit of all the other hours. The very dirge. Let five o'clock come with its bandages of light. A life boy in bruised waters. The first broken plank of
3: morning.
0: Mm. I just love that. It, it reminds me so much. I, I I know this will sound funny, but I thought of uh, Frodo and Sam on the <laughs> as they were on the, the way to Mount Doom. Four o'clock must have been a desolate hour for them.
2: <laughs> I wanted to pick the moment that seemed the most desolate mm. as a kind of physical emblem of the place we can go where we feel most desolate, most bereft, most isolated. And 4 a.m. seems to be that moment where you're somehow broken between, you're lost between the night that's come before and the morning that seemed never so far away.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yes. And I just kept trying to find images <laughs> for that moment that would express that hollow, unearthly hour.
0: I love that, that, that um, one line especially here where it says, the hour of nausea at middle age, the hour with its face in its hands. It's like you know, when you just—it's—it's—it's it's, yeah. it's absolutely wonderful.
2: Uh, thank you. I, I like it too. It's such a peculiar thing to say, but I think we all have had that moment ourselves, where yeah. somehow the feeling of our own, f- you know, face in our hands is mm-hmm. displaced into the moment, and the whole—the moment feels like the whole world is like this, with its face in its hands, and that—that that kind of um desolation, basically.
0: I'm always so absolutely. Enchanted by metaphors, I, I just think, um, where do these things come from? I mean, you are a master <laughs> of metaphor, and and it's it's a type of brilliance that I just I, I I don't know that I can find within myself, but it's it's just so incredible.
2: Well, I, I feel where the same. Where I think metaphoric thinking is at the heart of poetic thinking, really, mm-hmm. that that thinking by metaphor. Um, is a way of thinking in poetry that's different in than, say, practical language or common sense or ordinary language. That there's a kind of understanding in metaphor that um, is is deeply related to poetry. Now, I think one of the things about the communication of poetry is that when you understand a metaphor, you become you become part of some kind of community
3: mm-hmm. that.
2: There's something in the recognition, the understanding, the participation in making meaning through metaphor um, that makes that brings you into some kind of relationship to another. So mm-hmm. There's some kind of intimacy when you understand a metaphor.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: when Shelley says, say, a poet is a nightingale
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and that uh, a poet is a, a nightingale singing to an unseen listener mm-hmm. um, who is the reader. In making meaning of that and understanding, what does that mean? How am I like the listener to a nightingale when I listen to a poem? And how is a poet like a nightingale? Um, Then I think you become part of the community of people who understand what that means Mm. and begin to recognize it.
0: And you can can actually study these and begin to, to, to practice finding these things. I mean...
2: I don't see why not. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I I don't think you have to be born understanding metaphors. Um, I think we are, but I don't think you have to be born. I think there's something you can learn to understand more. There's something you can learn to follow. There's something you can come to understand. I mean, there's some metaphors you may never get, but there are others you will. And I think the more you, um, the more you read poetry and the more you come to understand and feel it, the more you become an adept of metaphor. Mm
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that was uh, part of J.R. Tolkien's case, in his case for fantasy, that that these things enrich the real world. They're not they're not something separate from them. They're they, they actually enrich.
2: Well, he's an extreme case because he's creating whole worlds, yeah, not just parts of them. He's creating whole alternate worlds and the fantasy universes to create, you know, parallel worlds, yeah, secondary worlds.
0: Yes, but. But always possible, possible Mm world. Possible. (laughs) And would you share another poem, please? Uh, Is this from your new book? This is the
2: title poem from my new book. It's called "Special Orders."
0: And is this this available in bookstores now?
2: I hope so. I hope so too. (laughs) I couldn't find it. (laughs) It's out now, so you can. If you need a bookstore with a poetry section and a decent one, but you can find it. It's called "Special Orders." Give me back my father, walking the halls of Wertheimer Box and Paper Company with sawdust clinging to his shoes. Give me back his tape measure and his keys, his drafting pencil and his order forms. Give me his daydreams on line paper. I don't understand this uncontainable grief. Whatever you had that never fit, whatever else you needed, believe me, my father wanted your business would squat down at your side and sketch you a container for it.
0: I love that.
2: Thank you. It's an elegy for my father Mm -hmm. who was a salesman and um, we're speaking of metaphors. Um, I decided that, you know, in business there are special orders and standard orders. My father liked special orders. Um, That is the kind of order for boxes where you could make design your own boxes, he got paid more for them. And they were also more creative because he could design the box rather than just, um, order something that already existed. And I decided to make that the title of this poem for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and special orders has a kind of, I think in this context, a religious overtone a feeling as in taking orders. And this is also a special order that I would like to have my father back <laughs> Yes. um even though I can't
3: mm-hmm. so
2: you're taking in this case I was taking a business term and transforming it it still relates to business but it also means something else
3: mm-hmm.
0: so last night you talked about the inspiration for your writing comes often through your walking mm-hmm. could you could you talk a little bit um about that that uh um
2: my my talk last night is was was called um, "My Pace Provokes My Thoughts: Poetry and Walking," and there are really two parts of it. Um, the one part is um, what walking does, and how I was saying that for me, um, and for many others also. But I was beginning with myself. Um, poetry has often been intimately tied to my vocation, which is writing poetry. That I didn't, I wasn't even aware of it, but. Um, I'd often create while walking or think of things mm-hmm. while walking. And that the somehow, and I felt walking as a subject was hiding in plain sight, that <laughs> is everyone knows about it, but no one thinks about it. Um, and, uh, and that I found that when you walk, you can put yourself, the simple sort of non-volitional act of walking can contribute to a kind of associative state of mind or a kind of drift. It can take you away from the practical world and enter or instigate another kind of state. And I found that that kind of state was very conducive to, to writing poetry. It kind of brought in the daydreaming parts of the mind, mm-hmm. which are so necessary to, to poetry, the, the idea of reverie. And the kind of drift that you get, the non-associative, the non-logical kind of drift, was often very good for instigating creative thoughts, as I think many have. And and, And then I realized that for my entire life that I've been writing poetry, I've been walking and using walking to get myself into some kind of associative drift. And so I began to look at this as a subject not just for myself um, and all my long walks starting in high school and through college and my walking into the college library and then my reading of poetry. And I said I began to walk on another plane because I was suddenly walking with Wordsworth and walking with T.S. Eliot and walking with John Clare, the great unknown romantic poet, lesser-known romantic poet. Um, And the other part of my subject then was... The history of representations in walking and what that 's meant, and there have been whole schools of poets who walk, such as the Gaelic hedge school poets or the italian french italian thirteenth uh, century troubadours, the French trouves who wa- they 're basically wandering minstrels mm-hmm. and I began to look at how poetry has been represented in poetry, um, how walking has been represented in poetry ever since so that, those are the two parts of, of the talk one. How poetry instigates, How walking instigates a kind of creativity. Number one, and then number two, how have poets, since Wordsworth especially, thought about walking in poetry? What's the work that walking has done?
0: Is there any possibility that this might uh, become another book? I mean, that would be so wonderful to uh, for those of us who love poetry and we love walking.
2: Hmm. Well, you know, I hadn't thought of it as a book, but it's clear it was it was evident to me that. One, a lot of people respond to the topic and that people walk and they they use walking in the similar kinds of Mm -hmm. ways, maybe not to create necessarily to create poetry, but people do find themselves drifting, thinking in another kind of way Mm -hmm. in walking. And then I certainly haven't exhausted the subject in terms of the way that walking has been represented in poetry Um, because people were just continued to come up with examples for me. Um, that I hadn't thought of, and many that I have thought of that I just wasn't able to spend a lot of time with because it was only a single talk. So yes. I don't have a plan to make it a book at the moment, but it's certainly worthy of one.
3: Oh
0: yes, absolutely. Oh, that would be absolutely wonderful. Um, in fact, I love um, your poem uh, for the sleepwalkers. I-, I was wondering if would you consider reading this one for
2: us? Um, I would, but I don't have it with me. I do. Oh, <laughs> okay. It'll be my pleasure. Um, You know, one of the things that you pointed out to me when we first spoke is that Uh um, I've been thinking about this subject for a long time. My first book was called For the Sleepwalkers. Yes. Um, I wasn't so interested in in walking as in unconscious walking. Yes. And the state of the unconscious and where that led us.
3: Yes.
2: So For the Sleepwalkers. Tonight I want to say something wonderful for the sleepwalkers who have so much faith in their legs, so much faith in the invisible arrow carved into the carpet, the worn path that leads to the stairs instead of the window, the gaping doorway instead of the seamless mirror. I love the way that sleepwalkers are willing to step out of their bodies into the night, to raise their arms and welcome the darkness, palming the blank spaces, touching everything. Always they return home safely, Like blind men who know it is morning by feeling shadows. And always they wake up as themselves again. That's why I want to say something astonishing like, Our hearts are leaving our bodies. Our hearts are thirsty black handkerchiefs flying through the trees at night, soaking up the darkest beams of moonlight, the music of owls, the motion of wind torn branches. And now our hearts are thick black fists. Flying back to the glove of our chests. We have to learn to trust our hearts like that. We have to learn the desperate faith of sleepwalkers who rise out of their calm beds and walk through the skin of another life. We have to drink the stupefying cup of darkness and wake up to ourselves, nourished and surprised.
0: Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for writing that, and oh. thank you for reading it. My great pleasure. What uh, what an inspiration! I, um, I'm, I, I just get a little speechless. <laughs> I just fall into enchantments around you all the time. Thank you. Um, um,
2: sleepwalking seemed to me so. It still seems to me so mysterious. Yes. And so strange, and I wanted to think about it as a as something quite wonderful and odd, um, and also that you that you can survive it.
3: Yes.
2: (laughs) Because you're really unconscious. You're really in danger in a certain kind of way because you're not aware. Right. Um, And the fact that you can somehow return home safely from it seems to me a great, you know, lovely mystery.
0: And I, I, I don't know about other people, but I know sometimes I feel that way. I, get lost in my worlds of either my writing or in reading, you know, especially uh, when I go into the places of, of middle earth and spend time with the languages and the works of, um, of J.R. Tolkien in the, in the deeper realms and, uh, and of some of the stories and the anguish, um, because there's so much beauty and tragedy in the, the histories of the middle earth, um, of middle earth. And, uh, and sometimes it feels a bit overwhelming and you almost wonder if you if you will um, survive it. One of the things that I absolutely loved from um, your book, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, in your section about uh, grief, um, and there's, uh, um, where is the book? There's that passage in there where, um, um, from, oh, I must find it. Anyway,
2: it are, are you speaking about when I myself was first re- uh, encountered the poetry of grief in the Iliad? Yes, um, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was speaking about, um, there's a moment in the Iliad where, um, Achilles finds out that his closest yes. friend Patroclus <sighs> has died and Patroclus, mm-hmm. you remember was wearing Achilles's armor mm-hmm. and Achilles, um, throws himself onto the ground and he begins to pour dust
3: Mm-hmm. over
2: his head in a kind of terrifying, overwhelming grief. Mm-hmm. And I was a freshman in college. I mean, if this is what you're talking mm-hmm. about, I was, mm-hmm. I'm i talking about my first experience of this mm-hmm. in poetry. I had a freshman humanities teacher who was very cute. And um, she began talking about this, and then she read us this section. And I was just it was a kind of transport of grief. I was overwhelmed with something happening that felt as if were happening to me, Mm -hmm. um, even though it was something that was happening in literature. And it was a, I call it a proto lyric within the Iliad, within Mm -hmm. this larger epic. And that was my first experience of the poetry of grief. Mm hmm. And one of the things I say there is, is that that something odd that happened to me in life is when I was in my 30s and my closest friend died. I was living in Detroit at the time. I was teaching at Wayne State University, and my closest friend was a um, a person named Dennis Turner. And Dennis suffered from liver cancer, and he died almost mm-hmm. immediately. And I realized that what I was feeling, I was wondering, when did I feel this grief quite like this before and I realized that I had felt it when I was a freshman in college mm-hmm. in that classroom in Grinnell, Iowa,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, listening to the story of um, Achilles' grief over Patroclus. And that mm-hmm. something had happened to me in life that had been preceded and helped me by recognizing it that it first happened to me in literature. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I say in How to Read a Poem is that grief is one of the most enduring aspects of um, of poetry. That is, all poetry's around the world. I mean, every culture has poetry. Poetry precedes prose in all cultures and languages. And that in every culture, there is a poetry of grief or a poetry of lamentation or a poetry of elegy, which help ease the dead on their path to the other world.
0: Yes, it's, uh, it was so interesting because when I read that in your book, How to Read a Poem and, F- and Fall in Love with Poetry, it reminded me in the story of the Samaritan of Turin-Turinbar because there's a similar story where... Um, um, Beleg is um, um, rescued, and um, he ends up um, Belleg and uh, Gwindor cut the bonds that held turin and he ends up killing him, <laughs> and and the very person who has rescued him, who is his dear friend, and 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 he is he is so overcome with grief, and um and I remember reading that and just weeping at the grief that you know of this young man, and then when I read in your book, it, it's it's one of those things too where you you read something and it's like and it touches something deep within you, and you wonder where where is this touching, where is this coming from, um.
2: I think the thing about this extreme grief is that it's asocial. Mm-hmm. That is, it's not easily born within the social community. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons the the literature of grief or the and the poetry of grief in mm-hmm. particular speaks to us so deeply is it speaks to some part of ourself that isn't socialized,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and
2: it's something you need to experience on your own. If you remember last night um, during the question and answer period, um, people were talking. We were talking about. Um, Poetry in relationship to driving and how driving operates in a somewhat similar but also somewhat different way. People drive so much here and the driving creates a kind of private or special space that is not social. I mean, you're with other people, but you're also by yourself. And do you remember a woman shared a Mm -hmm. story about her grief over the death of her husband? Yes. And she said that she hadn't really experienced that grief until suddenly she was in the car by herself Mm -hmm. and she was away from her children and her family. And suddenly she was overcome by the grief of her husband, over the death of her husband. She was in mourning, but she hadn't actually experienced her own mourning her own private feeling because she'd been with other people and suddenly she was alone and she was overtaken by her own grief. I thought that was a very moving story Mm -hmm. and it's a story related to me, related to poetry. I mean, she wasn't talking about poetry in particular, but poetry can help create that space for you that can deliver your own private griefs. And it's a great consolation to have that private grief expressed, Mm -hmm. but you have to be alone Um, And you have to be willing to be alone. You have to be able to be alone to experience your own feelings. And then those feelings can be triggered by the words of another.
0: Edward Hurst, thank you so very much for coming on the show this morning. I can't believe how fast our time has flown.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure.
0: And we didn't even get to touch on your work at John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, um, although people can check out. We have
2: a website. Okay. You just check out the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, and you'll see what the work we do yes. on behalf of art and artists and various scholarship fields.
0: And thank you so much for being involved in that work and encouraging artists and um, pe- creative people everywhere. Um, gosh, our, our our time is out. Um, is there is there one last thing perhaps that you would say to an aspiring poet who maybe is still teetering on whether or not to pursue? Um, um, writing or, or the reading
2: uh, I mean I think that, that, that um, poetry can just give you back your own life to yourself mm. and you can experience yourself and you can enter it wherever you are you can you can go all the way and make a life totally devoted to poetry, but that's also not necessary. You can also find yourself wherever you are, and um, and also anyone can read poetry. Yes, I mean anyone can write it. Also, it we're, we're you know we're Whitmanian Democrats. We're <laughs> Americans. Anyone right. can write it, but certainly anyone can read it. It really exists for all of us.
0: And thank you again for your book, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. If anyone is looking for a place to start, that's absolutely a wonderful place to start. Thank you for being in the world who you are and inspiring all of us.
2: Thank you, Tani. It's just a joy to be with you.
0: Thank you. And that is the end of our time. Uh, Janine is coming up in just a few moments with Moms Rock the House. My guest this morning has been Edward Hirsch, poet, essayist, and president of the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. Um, the show will be up on podcast in uh, just a little bit in case uh, you know a friend who's interested in poetry and maybe wants to tune into the show. Our website is KCI.org. And until next week, I will say to you, uh, A star shines on the hour of our meeting. And go out, please um, get some fresh air, do something elvish, hug someone. Find your passion and bring it into the world. I promise you your life will be enriched, and so will the lives of those around you. Give and receive love freely, especially big kisses right on the mouth. Yes, I am advocating kissing your friends right on the mouth. Try it. You might like it. (laughs) So until next week, um, we'll be back. I'm not sure what we'll be doing, but we'll have some Elvish Adventures, and please stay tuned for Janine coming up with Mom's Rock in the House. This is KUCI in Irvine. I am Tani Genuvia. And until next week, namaria.
3: Show you